0: Saints, how would you define your relationship to Jesus Christ? How would you define your relationship to Jesus Christ? This question was asked on a Christian form a little over a year ago, and the answers were quite interesting. Here are some of them. The Lord is my friend when I need one. Another one. He provides me with emotional support, walks with me through life, and I am intimately tied to him forever. He is the head of my house, gives and teaches me how to love. He is my best friend, whom I can sit And chat with over coffee or fight it out with one-on-one no holds bar he is like my brother or sister I can play with as if we were puppies running down running around chasing each other and wrestling laughing and having fun my companion whom I can run a race with, cheerleading each other on. My lover, I can dance with while everything else falls away to non-existence. Now, as funny as some of those may sound, they're actually very sad. And friends, what's most depressing about those answers is none of them are biblically based. None of them quoted... A verse. None of them quoted at least a quote from someone who's smarter than themselves. They all echo what Christianity for many in the Western world is all about. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And although that title or that saying, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not necessarily a hill that I'm going to die on this morning. What I will die on, though, is the idea behind it, this idea that Christianity is, is all about you and God, that, that the church is all about you coming to a place and you hearing a sermon simply just for yourself. There is an individualistic Christianity that's popular that's, that's sweeping across the lands. And saints, when we consider our relationship to Christ, we first must consider Christ's relationship to the church. Before we can ask or answer how our own relationship with Christ is, we must answer and look through scripture. What does the Bible say concerning Christ's relationship to his church before we can ever talk about a personal relationship with jesus christ because christianity saints is not for the lone rangers it's not for you and just your bible that's why many hate doctrine because doctrine divides we don't need doctrine we need to work on our relationships We need more of a community, us to help each other out in order that we can have a better relationship with God. Saints, how does the Bible define our relationship to Jesus Christ? What does the Bible say concerning us, the church, and Christ? And we can look at various verses in the Bible that speak of this. But this morning, I want us to look at one verse in one of the most controversial books in all of the Bible. If you will, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of the Song of Solomon, if you would. Song of Solomon. And it is, the Song of Solomon is the book right before Isaiah. So look for Isaiah and then look to the very end of Isaiah and you will find the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. And once you are there, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Song of Solomon. Would you look at chapter 2 with me? Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, a most glorious verse. It reads, My beloved is mine, and I am his. You may be seated. This morning I have three points I want us to consider concerning this verse. The first is Christ, our heavenly bridegroom. Christ our heavenly bridegroom. The second is Christ, our prized possession. Christ, our prized possession. And third, Christ, our assurance. Christ, our assurance. Number one, Christ, our heavenly bridegroom. Christ, our prized possession. And Christ, our assurance. To give you some background to the Song of Solomon... There are many who believe that this book was written by uh, King Solomon during the time of his reign or either after the time of his reign. Others believe that these collection of poems or songs are written to King Solomon either during or after his reign. So they're either written by Solomon during and after his reign or they are songs written to King Solomon either during or after his reign. And while the authorship of this book uh, has been up for much debate, how one is to interpret the songs has been the dividing line for many who approach the Song of Solomon. How are we to approach, how are we to, uh, what type of hermeneutics, what are the tools we need to break down and interpret this book? Because it seems like this book shouldn't be in the Bible. If you read it, it seems like the book is all about... Passionate love, um, all about sex, all about marriage. And there's no mention of Christ. There's no mention of Christ or there being a bride. Um, But I I think, saints, when we consider the Song of Songs, uh, we we have to look at it from a, a historical, a biblical historical vantage point. And when we do that, we will see that the Song of Songs is much more than just. Uh, a book about love and sex and marriage. There are some who believe that the Song of Psalms is Sol- Solomon are simply a collection of romantic songs about a king and his wife, and that's all it's about. There are others who believe that it's God's inspired way of teaching us that he approves marriage and uh, sex in the context of marriage. Others believe that the Song of Solomon is a is about a relationship between a God in Israel. And lastly, which is the view that I hold to, some believe that the Song of Solomon is to be read typologically. Typologically. What I mean by that is it's a book about two historical people that's pointing forward to Christ and his church. I think that is the best interpretation. I think that's the most consistent interpretation with the Song of Solomon because... Who is the Bible all about? It's about Jesus Christ. And when we consider the language in the various chapters and verses in the Song of Solomon, we see that it's much more than just a king and his wife, but it's about the eternal king and his bride, the church. So as we read, as we go through the Song of Solomon, have this in mind that it is the church and Christ Christ. It's depicting this relationship between Christ and his bride. C.S. Burton has said concerning this verse, our verses this morning, if there is a happy verse in the Bible, it is this one. If there was one happy verse in the Bible, chapter two, verse 16 of the Song of Solomon is it. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, in this Song of Songs, we see the love of Christ and his church Running towards each other in a full torrent. So saints, let's open up this glorious verse this morning by considering point one. Christ, our heavenly bridegroom. Christ, our heavenly bridegroom. Saints, if you've ever been in a relationship, and I'm sure many of us have, what are the things you do to show that your partner is unique and special? What are the things that you do to show that your partner, that your companion, is unique and special? Many of us show our love by buying our companion special items. We, we uh, me personally, what I like to do is I like to uh, buy my wife things that uh, she's desired. Maybe that's a new dress. Maybe that's uh, a new set of uh, whatever makeup she wants. Uh, maybe it's uh, a purse. I, I'm not that rich. I can't buy her jewelry. Um, but there are things that I know that she likes. Uh, and the way that I show that I love her, not buying her love, but showing that I love her, is by buying her special things. Some of us show our love for our partner, show that our partner is special by the way we treat him or her. That's a great way of showing our love toward our partner. Maybe you do this by showing that, you're, that uh, you have more patience with your partner than you have patience with others. Uh, maybe you think more logically and thoughtfully with your partner than you do with others. That's a wonderful way of showing how you truly appreciate your partner. And while many of us show our love towards our partner by the things we buy and by the way we act, we also show the uniqueness of our partner by the things we say, specifically the titles we attribute to our partner. Let me give you an example. Some of us, or some of you who are in relationships, I do it, refer to our significant other as honey, or love, or baby, or babe. And women have an interesting thing where you don't call them those names. They, they act like you're committing the greatest sin on earth because Somehow when you get in a relationship with her, she no longer is such and such, but she is baby or love or honey. But when we say those names, when we, when we refer to our significant other as love and honey or baby and those things like that, they're not just names that carry no significance. We don't walk around, women don't walk around calling other men honey or love. And men, I hope not, don't walk around calling other women baby or babe. But there is a special significance. You are showing the uniqueness of your partner when you are calling them these names. But also, you are speaking of the unique relationship that you have with your partner. You see, titles speak of this unique, special relationship that exists between your partner and yourself. And as we come to the opening of the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, we see the unique relationship between Christ and his church. And has done so by two words. Consider the opening of verse 16. It reads, My beloved, my beloved. It is the church who is speaking, saints. And it is Christ who is being spoken of. The church refers to Christ as her beloved. This is a symbol, saints, of affection, if there ever was one. But saints, we must ask, do you consider Christ your beloved? Oftentimes, when we consider our Christ, we can and should refer to him as the God-man. We can and should refer to him as God in the flesh, for he is. When we speak of our Christ, we can and should refer to him as our Savior. That is proper, for he saved us from our sins. When we speak of our Christ, we can and refer to him as our King, for he is the eternal King. He's the King of Kings. But saints, if all of those are true, if all those titles are true of our Christ, how much more proper is it to refer to Christ as our beloved. How much more proper is it to speak of Christ as our beloved? For Christ is our loved one. He is the one whom our soul should ought to love the most. Christ is our beloved. This affection toward Christ speaks of the special relationship between Christ and And his church. And friends, the way the Bible speaks of this special relationship between Christ and the church is through the analogy of marriage. That's how the Bible speaks of this relationship. Through the analogy of marriage. We read of this in Isaiah 54, 5. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. John three twenty nine, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Revelation 21, 2 says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down of the heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And you can read of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. But the point is this. What we have in the Bible is the church is the bride of Christ. If you're taking notes, that's important. The church is the bride of Christ. And Christ is the bridegroom of the church. The church is the bride. And Christ is the bridegroom of the church. What that means is this, saints. The church collectively Not simply individually, but collectively is married to Jesus Christ. We are married to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our heavenly bridegroom. And because Christ is such, we can speak of him as our beloved. Because Christ is our bridegroom, it is proper to speak of Christ, to refer to Christ as our beloved. Let's examine a few aspects of our bridegroom. Let's consider the first uh, aspect of our bridegroom, which is the love Christ has for his bride, the love Christ has for his bride. It's a love that never had a beginning, as you know. It's a love that's without measure or limit. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son, and because he is such, there never was a time when he did not love his people. Gerhardus Voss once said that the greatest evidence that the Christian can know that Christ, that God loves his people, is that it never began. That's your greatest evidence that Christ truly loves you. It's because it never began. When we consider the nature of who Christ is, he is, a, he is the divine son who became flesh and loves his bride since the beginning of time, before the heavens and the earth were made. The son was given a particular people from the father, and the son written their names on his heart. The father in eternity past gives to the son a bride to wed. But saints, before we start to puff ourselves up and think highly of ourselves, the father doesn't give to his son the most eloquent of brides. The father doesn't give to his son the most, unique or special of brides. The father doesn't give to his son the most beautiful of brides, but rather he gives to his son the most adulterous of brides. The father gives to his son the most sinful of brides. He gives to his son a bride who's already had a failed attempt, who's already had a failed relationship problem. For the bride has already sinned in Adam. So he gives to his son the most hideous, the most adulterous, the most sinful. One who's already had one divorce of bride. Saints, there was nothing lovely about us that drew our Lord's eyes towards us. Spurgeon says he loved them. And this is beautiful. Not for anything that he could ever gain from them. What can Christ gain from you, saints? are you loving him? You don't heighten the love of God. You don't add glory to him, as our confession says. For he had all things in himself. But hear this, but because of what he would impart to them. Christ does not love his people because of what they can do for him, but rather what he can do for them. Christ loves you for what he can do for you. So we can say it is because of Christ he loves us. The son, saints, in spite of our adultery and sinfulness in Adam, he looks past our sins. And what does he say? He says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. He he looks past our depravity. He looks past our failed relationship and says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Saints, it's it's fine, it's okay to say that Jesus loves me. We've heard it since we were children. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, but we are not supposed to stop there. We are to consider the type of love that Christ loves his people. It's a love that's infinite, a love that's without measure, a love that's eternal. The Son looks past our sins, Saints, and He says, I have loved you, you are mine. And in the fullness of time, the groom comes and saves his bride. He says in eternity past, I love you. And then in the present or in the fullness of time, the son shows his love. Or as the hymn writer says, from heaven he came and sought her. What beautiful language is that? From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died saints we need to write that truth upon our hearts ephesians twenty-five twenty-five tells us more explicitly than i think throughout all well, throughout the whole bible husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her The deep love that Christ has for his church is displayed in his life and death. You want to know the great measures of Christ's love for you? Consider the doing and the dying of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But add to that the rising of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the love of his bride, Christ lives a life of perfect obedience to God's law. For the love of his bride, Christ comes and lays his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. This is why Jesus can say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What Saints, what greater love do you know of Christ's love to his church, that he lays down his life for his friends? Saints, one of the greatest mysteries in all of theology is, yes, how can the one God be three and the three be one? How can... Christ, who is the eternal Son, add to Himself a true human nature with all of its common infirmities yet without sin. That's a great profound mystery. But saints, we are to add to that. Why would the Father love us in such a way that He would give His only begotten Son to save them for their sins? Yes, How can the one be three and the three be one is a deep mystery. How can Christ, who is the eternal son, add to himself a human nature yet without sin? But saints also, why does God choose to love us in this way? To send his only begotten son. Why would the son choose the love, the most sinful of brides? Why would one so holy, freely, freely choose to set his love upon many who are so evil? When the apostle Paul saints pondered this question, his only reply was this, oh the depth, oh the depth and the riches of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways when when paul considered the love that christ has for his people he didn't try to theologically wrap his mind around it but what he did was he went down to his knees and he said oh the depth of the riches and wisdom of god who knows more than me who loves In such a way that I could never love. We love. Why? How do we love? We are drawn to love. We are moved to love. But Christ, since he's the eternal son, is impossible. He doesn't undergo some sort of emotional change for him to be moved to love you. So when we say, why does Christ love us? We say, because of Christ. That is why God loves you. It's because of God that he loves you. Consider the faithfulness of the bridegroom. We read of this in John 13, 1. And I love this verse. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I recently went back and listened to our sermons in John. And if you get a chance, listen to this sermon by Pastor Antonio. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Christ never wavered in his love for his bride. He never reconsidered the mission that he was given to him by his father. But Christ remained faithful to the very end. Christ remained faithful to those saints, to us who are faithless. But saints, we aren't to think that the faithfulness of Christ stopped when he ascended to the right hand of the father. We, have, we tend to think that when we read this, he loved them to the very end. Well, that must mean that when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, then Christ's faithfulness to his people is no more. But when we speak of the work of Christ, we are to say that there is a finished yet ongoing work of Jesus Christ. There is a finished yet ongoing work of Jesus Christ. What is he doing now? He is our great high priest who advocates on our behalf before the Father, not pleading with him, but by his presence alone. He intercedes on our behalf. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You will not hold yourself together, saints, until that final day. And if it was up to you, then you would fail. But it is Christ, add to that, the triune God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, who upholds you to the very end. And lastly, consider the marriage seal that Christ gives his bride. And I think this is one of the most sweetest and uh, uh, th- things to think about when we consider our relationship to Christ as being a marriage. Christ says in John uh, 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever. What this means, saints, is this. The Holy Spirit is the marriage seal that Christ leaves to his bride. The Holy Spirit is the merit seal. We can say that the gospel is the proposal, and the Holy Spirit is the merit seal. The Holy Spirit, as, you were, as, as, as it were, is the engagement ring that Christ leaves to his bride. How beautiful is that? But we also must know, though, that when there is one person of the Trinity present, the other two are there as well. Saints, when we consider Christ and our marriage to him, he leaves to us the greatest gift. He leaves to us the third person of the Trinity as a marriage seal, as an engagement ring, as a promise that he will not leave us as orphans, but he will come back for us. He sanctifies the bride, the Holy Spirit does. The the Holy Spirit prepares the bride for the groom. And friends, as we close this point, the question I want to leave you with is this. Can you do you Call Christ your beloved. Do you consider Christ your beloved? Are you married to Jesus Christ? And if so, saint, how is your marriage doing? How is your marriage doing in Jesus Christ? And if and if you say it's doing bad because I, then you have a wrong idea of your relationship to Jesus Christ. Because we don't look at what our, what we do in our marriage to Christ, but we look at what Christ has done, and then we live in light of that truth. And all those who look and consider what Christ has done, never say that my marriage with Christ is failing. Never they say that Christ, that our marriage with Christ is failing. Saints who are in here this morning, those who are saved and unsaved, have you tasted the sweetness of Christ? And if you have, have you found him to be your delight? And you might say, yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thereby I'm married to him. But saints, that doesn't mean that he's your beloved. Yes, theologically, we can agree. We can say, yes, I believe that in Jesus Christ, in him alone, but, but is he the one whom your soul loves the most? That's what's at stake. That's the question that must be answered. Let's move on. Point number two, Christ, our prized possession. Friends, what is the most valuable thing that you own? When you consider all the things that you have at your house, what is the most valuable thing that you own? In other words, what is your most prized possession in your house? Now, many of you might say family is the most valuable thing. That you own. Now, when the world is uh, has has left you, has departed you, you can trust that your family will always be there. And family is a great thing to have. It's a great thing to, to lean on. Some of you might say time is our most valuable uh, possession. My mother is one who values time to the uttermost. And if you've ever been around her, you know that there's never a time when she's not doing something. She values time. Others might say that your job experience is what you value or your college education or your 401k is what you value for some. We might value a particular object that's been passed down from generation to generation. Uh, Speaking on the behalf of my family, my siblings, we tend to value things that have been owned by my father and my mother and my grandparents. And those are the things that might seem invaluable to you are of the utmost value to us. But saints, saints, I say all that to say this, we all have something or someone in our lives that that we value the most. We all can point to something or someone and say, that's of infinite value. I can't let go, I can't depart from this person or this thing. And the question I have for you, saints, is this. When you are considering what is your most prized possession and what's of most value to you, where does Christ rank in those things? Where does Christ rank in your list of most prized possessions that you own? Where do you place the value of Christ in your life, saints? Where do you place Him? And we have this idea in Christianity where we have God, family, and then we have our children and we have our job. But rarely do we, do people actually live by that? Rarely do actually, do do Christians Live by God is first, family is second, job is third, but it's more so family, job, God. Does Christ even matter to you? What value do you place on Christ? And as we come to our verse this morning, we see that those who call Christ their beloved are those who also call Christ their most prized possession. Look again at verse 16 of Song of Solomon. It says, My beloved, and here are the next two words, is mine. My beloved is mine. The church not only loves Christ, but claims Christ as her own. These words echo the covenantal language of Jeremiah thirty-two 38, which says, The Lord says, They shall be my people and I will be their God. This echoes the covenantal relationship between Christ and his church that we are God's people and he is our God. Here the church says of Christ, he is my God. Jesus Christ is my God. The church takes possession of Christ and says Christ belongs to me. Friends, we are to take pause and consider what's really being said here. It's not just poetic language that's nice and sweet, although it is. But, Saints, this is one of the most remarkable truths of all the Christian faith. This, this is one, this, when we read of my beloved is mine, we are to, we are to stop and take pause and wonder. For this is of most Uh, importance this is remarkable the church says of christ saints he's mine i don't know if you've caught it yet but when we talk about salvation when we speak of the gospel we have a tendency to say that the gospel is being saved from the wrath of god which to a certain extent that's true when we speak of the gospel, we say that the good news of the gospel is we are no longer sinners, but adopted as sons and daughters of God. That's the good news of the gospel. Or the good news of the gospel is we are justified not by our works, but by grace alone. Others might say the good news of the gospel is we are physically resurrected from the dead. Or this, the good news of the gospel is we are saved from our sins, and that's it. And saints, when we consider the gospel, when we consider the good news of the gospel, our minds go quickly to salvation from sin and completely miss the sweetness of the gospel. Saints, the good news of the gospel is not merely that we are saved from our sins, The good news of the gospel is not merely that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. The good news of the gospel is not merely that we merit heaven. But the good news of the gospel, what makes the gospel good, what makes the gospel sweet, is sinners get Christ. That's the good news of the gospel is that dead people get Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the sweetness of the gospel. It is Jesus Christ, saints, that is held out to us in the gospel. Not merely justification, not merely redemption, and not merely heaven, but it is Christ and him alone. That's who's held out for us. The gospel without Christ is no gospel at all. Not justification, not redemption, not grace, but Jesus Christ. In him alone, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's who the good news of the gospel is all about. And saints, that is why I hope you appreciate the sermon that was preached Uh, three weeks ago from Pastor Antonio when he spoke about we are not justified merely by faith alone. Merely by some abstract faith that's detached from its object. But we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. You receive Christ by faith alone. So when you speak of how are you saved, it's not merely by faith. It is by Jesus Christ and it is by God giving you the Holy Spirit, awakening your dead soul, giving you, taking out your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh and saying, yes, I believe in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. By faith, I put my trust in him. It is by Christ in him alone, Saint, that you are faith. The hope that you have for this life and the one that's to come is not your knowledge of Reformed theology. It's not your knowledge of the Trinity. But it is Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And all that we know about Reformed theology, all that we know of Christology and the Trinity only help us understand more what Christ has done for us. Yes, we can and should speak frequently of the benefits we receive in Christ. I amen all of that. I amen justification. I amen adoption. I amen imputed righteousness. All of that. But saints, the Christian's joy is not primarily what we receive from Christ. The Christian's joy is we get Christ. That's the joy of the Christian faith. It's Jesus Christ and no one else. He is our most prized possession. Not grace. Not redemption. And not heaven. But it is Jesus Christ. And young people who are here, I hope that you Write this eternal truth in your heart that it is Christ whom you need and no one else in this world. Jesus Christ. And that's why the words of this song is so remarkable. Because those who have been dead are now alive and say, he is mine. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Because there once was a time when Christ was not yours. There once was a time when you could not say that Christ is mine. There once was a time, saints, when you rejected Christ. There once was a time when Christ was of no value to you. When you hated Christ. When people would speak of Christ, you would walk out to the other room. I did that. Many of you did that. We wanted nothing to do with our Lord. We were those whom Isaiah 53 speaks of. There was no beauty that we saw in Christ. We despised him. We mocked him. But the mystery of the gospel is this. That Christ is mine. I don't know how to answer that. But I do know it is because Christ in him alone that I am able to say from my mouth that Jesus Christ is mine. But we must ask, why should we value Christ above all else? What is the reasoning? Why should we value Christ above our family, above our our old vintage cars, above uh, myself, my shoes and my watches and all the things that I have? Why should I value Christ above my son, Owen, and above my, my wife, Leela, above my mother and my brother and my church? Why should I value him above all of these other things? Here's number one, because he's the God man. That's why you should hold Christ of infinite value, because he is the God man. He is God in flesh. The eternal son came down from such a high place, never has one saint come down from such a high place to stoop to such a low place. The one who sits at the right hand of the father, the one whom Isaiah speaks of, whose whose train fills the entire temple comes down and is wrapped in swaddling clothes. That one, the eternal son becomes like his own yet without sin. The second person of the blessed trinity added to himself a true human nature without sin. We are to value our Christ because he's not merely just a man, but he is the God man. We should not give, we should give to him the highest value in our lives. And when we speak of Christ and of, and of him have infinite value, we tend not to give him the worth that he so desperate, or, or that he desires, not desperately, but that he desires. We, we don't give Christ the proper treatment that he's rightfully due. And when I think about that, I think about what Malachi says in Malachi chapter one, where in Malachi's day, the people are offering to God, they're bringing to God animals that are lame and sick. They are bringing the second best to God. But also, The priests are allowing it to happen. So in a nutshell, the priests are saying, it's okay if you bring your, your lame and your sick sacrifices to God. It's okay if you bring your second best to God because He's worth it. And what does God say in Malachi chapter 1 verse 8? He says, present that to your governor. Present those sacrifices, that second best offering to your governor. Will He accept you or show you favor? Present that to them. Will He show you favor? Saints, is this not true of us? We give ourselves to the things in this world that have no value. We give all of ourselves to the things in this world that have no value. And we give to the one Who's of infinite value? None of us. That's true of myself, Saint. And that's true of you as well. The question I have is, what do you give to Christ? And what are you giving to the world? There is no neutrality in this. Do you value Christ? Do you see Him above all else? And the second reason why we should value Christ above all else is because He saved you. Christ saved you. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Saints, when we say Christ saved us, your faces were blank. <laughs> and your faces tell, maybe, maybe, and maybe I'm guessing that, of course I know He saved me. But have you ever considered, maybe you never thought of this before, but have you ever considered, What if Christ never came? What if Jesus Christ never came and saved you? Then what? What if you were still an Adam? What happens now? Oftentimes we hear the great benefits of Christ and what Christ has done, but saying sometimes we need to take a trip down memory lane and remember who we were before God opened our eyes. Sometimes we need need to take a trip and consider hell in God's wrath before we consider God's grace and his Christ. When was the last time you considered your depravity? When was the last time you read Romans 3 and that description of who we are apart from Christ? When was the last time you considered all of those things? Saints, we must and we need to be reminded daily of, yes, that we are saved in Christ, but also what Christ has saved us from, who we were outside of Christ. And once we do that, then we will appreciate morally, truly the sweetness of Christ's redemption and what he has done for his own. And lastly, saints, why should we value Christ above all else? Why should Christ Saint be your most prized possession? Why should you prize Him above all else? The answer is this. Because you never deserved Him in the first place. Why should you value Jesus Christ? Because you never deserved Christ in the first place. Saints, we don't deserve Jesus Christ. But He's ours. By God's grace, Jesus Christ is ours. Friends, is Jesus Christ yours this morning? Can you honestly say, Jesus Christ, he's mine. I claim him. I take ownership of Christ. He is mine. Again, a right confession of Christ is of utmost importance. We we must confess Who Jesus Christ is. But the Christian must not stop there, saint. For confessing the right Christ is merely the entryway into saving faith. But we must take hold of the whole Christ. If we confess the whole Christ, we must take hold of the whole Christ. And say, He is mine. I value Him. Above all the things that this world can offer, that this world can throw at me, we are to see Him as a central figure of our lives, saints, and say with full confidence that He is mine. And lastly, let's turn to our, our last point, which is Christ is our assurance. Christ our assurance as if this verse couldn't get any better. As if Christ Couldn't be presented to us in much, in in, in a most glorified way. The ending words of our verse this morning are indeed, saints, the sweetest of them all. Verse 16, my beloved is mine. And here it is. And I am his. My beloved is mine. And the church says of Christ, And I am his. So far, the song has been speaking of our our relationship to Christ. Christ is our beloved. He is ours. And now the song speaks of Christ's relationship to us. It is Christ who says, they are mine. What beautiful words. My beloved is mine and I am his. The love between Christ and his church is reciprocal. There is a mutual love that exists between Christ and his church. It's not that we love Christ and Christ is lukewarm in his love for us. I'm sure many of you have been there in relationships. You know, you've done the alfalfa. Does, he love, does, she love me? does she love me? Does she love me? Does she love me not? Love me? Love me not. There is no does he love me? Does he love me not? When we consider Christ and his love for us. There is, he loves me, period. Christ says of his church saints, these most remarkable words, they are mine. But how are we Christ saints? How can Christ say we are his? In which ways are we his? Well, let me give you a few reasons. We are Christ by creation. We first are Jesus Christ by creation. Christ created all things and As creator, we are the clay and he is the potter. Secondly, we are Christ by election. The father in eternity past chose us in Christ. He elected us before the foundation of the world as a love gift to the son. Thirdly, we are Christ by purchase. Christ purchased the church by his own blood, as Acts 20, 28 tells us. Our redemption was bought by the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, we are Christ by federal headship. Christ is our federal head, meaning Christ represents us. He represents his people. He acts on our behalf. He works on our behalf. And as our federal head, all that Christ wins, he wins for us. And fifthly, we are Christ by union. We are Christ by union. We are united to Christ In a special manner. Thomas Watson says there is a closer union in this holy marriage than there can be in any other. In other marriages, two make one flesh, but Christ and the believer make one spirit. There is one spirit that unifies Christ and his believer. The only difference is this. One is without measure and one is in measure. But we are united to Christ by faith in him. Just as a husband or wife are united together in marriage, Christ and his church are united, but in a much more deeper and spiritual way, in a much more intimate way. Saints, these five ways in which we are united to Christ point to the glorious truth of all of Christianity, and that is this, that Christ and the believer are to ever are forever knit together. Christ and the believer are forever knit together that you can rest assured that your assurance is in jesus christ and him alone did you notice those things that the church doesn't say i hope i am his the the church doesn't say or i'm kind of his maybe i'm his maybe i'm not but declares with full confidence i am his i am christ i am his Saints, oh, how we need to be reminded of that truth daily, do we not? From the strongest of saints to the weakest, we all need to be reminded daily that we are Christ and none other and no other. In spite of our sin, in spite of our lack of faithfulness to God, we need to write the eternal truth of Christ's words in John ten twenty eight on our hearts that I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We need to write that eternal truth on our heart that there is nothing or no one in this world, the world, the flesh or the devil that can snatch you out of the hands of Jesus Christ, saints, our assurance in this life and the one that's to come is not found in our faithfulness to church attendance, although you need to come to church. Our assurance in this life and the one that's to come is not found in our evangelism and how many people we've converted, although you need to evangelize. What our assurance, saints? is solely found in one person alone. And that is Jesus Christ. You don't need to live perfectly to the law, saints, in order to gain a right, perfect standing before God, for Christ has lived for you. You don't need to offer yourselves up as a perfect sacrifice before God, for Christ has offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice, And saints, there will never be a time in this life and the one that's to come that you will ever need to be re-justified. For on the third day, Christ rose from the grave. The point of the sermon is this, saints. It's for you not to see the beauty of yourself and the loveliness of yourself, but it is, it is for you to see Christ in all of his glory and majesty. It is for you to see the loveliness of Christ and him crucified. It is Christ saints who first called us our beloved. It is, it is because of Christ we can say he is mine. And on the account of Christ and him alone, we can say I am his. Let's pray.